everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're studying Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. We're studying the great investors in the world who follow what we call the Rule One Investing Strategy. And Danielle, my lovely, beautiful, wonderful daughter, is Aww. is is learning with me, and I'm learning from her. And it's it's quite interesting, I think, how we're doing this. <laughs> we're we're down. We're about in our hundred and. Third, we're on hundred and four. Hundred and fourth podcast, yeah. Which means we've spent, let's say, a hundred hours talking about this now together, which is pretty nuts. Yeah, it is. That's that's like a couple of weeks, two two to th- almost three weeks of of chatting about it full time as a job. You know, two three weeks. Yeah. And you, you think about it. When I started learning this stuff, I was kind of an apprentice out to a guy who um, took me under his wing, who had become a very successful investor in this strategy. And it's kind of a family. I mean, it goes around kind of word of mouth. Um, They don't teach this or they didn't used to teach this in any business schools anywhere. Um, And the reason that they didn't teach it anywhere, Charlie Munger says, of course, is it's too simple, but that's just Charlie being funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's Charlie saying it's obvious like you don't really need to learn it. And then the rest of us who are not Charlie Munger are like, wait a second, we need to spend <laughs> hours, hours figuring this thing out. Trying to figure out what he what, what he really means. But the um, the real reason it isn't taught anywhere is because it violates the fundamental uh, rules uh, and it 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 basically says that the that the fundamental axioms of the modern portfolio theory paradigm which are how your mutual fund is invested almost entirely. Uh, All the fund managers operate under the modern portfolio theory, which says that higher risk requires, uh, or higher rewards require higher risk, and you can't beat the market anyway, and that, um, that investors are rational, therefore all the time prices are equal to the values. Um, yeah, that's the that's the basis of it, right? That and, price all the time reflects the value of the stock because the information about that company is priced in by the multitudes of investors in the market buying and selling who have all the same information and they all price it in and at any, any given moment pretty much right, give or take, you know, a tiny bit. Yeah, and that therefore any stock has been priced to perfection meaning that all of the future potential amazingness of a Google is already built into today's stock price. It's already priced, they call it priced to perfection. So that if is all that the- Is that true? Good, That's a real term? Yeah, priced, priced to, perfection. to perfection, which means that all That's of the expectations funny. of Google judged by all these thousands of fund managers is already built into a discounted value to today. And that's mm-hmm. what you're seeing in the market. Um, and so that means that Google is really, today's price of Google is really just a 50-50 coin toss, whether it goes up or down. And the same thing can be said about a really tough stock, really a, a real stock that's just going through a terrible time. Like let's say Lululemon dropped, what, 12, 14% last, just in the last little bit of time. And so it's going through this really bad time and you'd say, oh, well, it's on sale because it fell or get away from it because it's going to go down a lot more. That's not the case with modern portfolio theory. They say that if the price of Lululemon today is um, 
I don't know, whatever it is right now, then that's price has all of the fear built into it, all of the fear coming from all this bad news that it's given out about its product, about its growth. All of that is baked in there. All of it is already discounted back into this particular price. And that price is priced to perfection for whatever everybody can figure out is going to happen in the future. What I think is so funny about that is that often on some bad news, which is what happened with Lulu, that they didn't make their earnings. And so people started selling the stock. Um, what often happens on bad news like that is that the the price will drop some precipitous amount one day. And then the next day, it'll drop a little more. And then the next day, it'll like make a little rally. And then the day after that, it'll go down again. And all of that is based on no new information. It's all the same information that came out that was the bad news five days ago. And yet you see stocks go through this up and down from people trying to figure out what it means and what they have to do based on their own incentives, their own cash flow, their own fund, their own boss wanting them to do something like who knows what it's based on. I just think that's so interesting that that theory is out there. And yet you see these ups and downs without any new information. Well, I can tell you that the modern portfolio theory professors who are listening to this podcast right now are just squirming for a chance to get their hands on the microphone so that they can tell you all of the reasons why that fits into modern portfolio theory perfectly. Yeah. And I mean, I can even make that case, you know, like, <laughs> it's not that hard, right? Like right. the case is, well, it's the same information, but now we have additional information coming from outside that changes the information we had. And now maybe because we see that so-and-so like sold off, now we've got to rally a little bit in order to like, it was, it was too low and now we're fixing it based on it's all just to, in order to get to the right price, and it's just taking a little longer. Right, and at every and, given uh, moment, that in, that price involves all of the possible things that could be known about this, that are known about this, and it's all feeding in extremely efficiently to a, an efficient market, which says emphatically that the market is efficient because people operate rationally. They are doing what's in their best interest. They are doing it uh, or the best interest of their clients, and they are not about to sell something worth $100 for $50. They're not going to do it. So they're not going to sell Lululemon for $51 if it's worth 100 because they're not stupid people. These are the smart people. And mm -hmm. by the same token, they're not going to buy it for $50. Or right now, people are buying it for $51, whatever. Um, if it's worth $25, they are not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. This is of absolutely rational conclusion. And so that's why this theory has been around so long. It really makes kind of a lot of sense when you think about it slowly and, and, and look at it deeply and really take it seriously. And it also answers. This is a real key thing, Danielle. There's a lot of evidence out there that you can't beat the market. And so the academics didn't start with the fact that People are crushing the market all over the place, some big winners, some big losers. Uh, no. What they found is that when they look at professional portfolios by people who are, should know how to do this and who offer you their services for one or two percentage points to beat the market, they don't beat the market. 96% of these guys don't beat the market at all. And any yeah. given year, any given year, 80% of the funds are not beating the market. So, yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> you start with just... some serious evidence there that it's very hard to beat the stock market. Almost nobody does it. And then the answer is, well, why not? And the, or the question is, why not? And then the academic conclusion is, well, because you can't. It's a 50-50 bet at any given moment, whether Google goes up or down or whether Lululemon goes up or down. That makes it random. 50-50 is random. That's a coin flip. And if it's random, eventually the market's going to level you. You might do a little while good, but then you're going to come back to, to just a zero return. And that's, in fact, what they find out. And you can listen to one blog after another, one podcast after another, or read one blog, and they'll show you all the reasons why they're right, and that's why you can't beat the market, and that's, that's why you shouldn't be trying, because even the best people can't beat the market. And, of course, as we've discussed, right, there is a family of investors out there that have been killing the market for for 85 years that have been driving the academics a little bit loony. Um, and so right now, what these academics say is basically, if you're a rule one type investor, you sort of follow the Warren Buffett, Ben Graham style of investing, Charlie Munger style. Yeah, you might beat the market, but you know, you're an anomaly. You're a five sigma event that you're, that you're doing this for so many years. Um, but here's the problem that they've got. The market, if, if you're beating the market, you should have to take a lot more risk to do so, right? You're lucky, but you're lucky because you took a lot more risk and you just didn't get caught yet. So in other words, risk and reward are related. If the market's doing, let's say, 11% from 1965 to now, and you do 25%, that's because you're lucky. Um, but it is also so unusual that the only way you can do that is that you've taken much more risk. And the problem that the academics have with Warren Buffett and investors like me, investors like Charlie Munger, is that you look at the portfolio and they've taken less risk on risk terms that they use in modern portfolio theory. They've taken less risk yeah. in their portfolio. Yeah. Their yeah. betas are lower than the market. Well, they consider risk and volatility to be the same thing. Right. And they're just not they're when you when you look not. at it from a long term perspective. Now, I get we've we've had this discussion. Right. And you guys who have listened to all of our podcasts and we know there's a bunch of you out there. You've, you've heard us talk about this for a few episodes. Um, I think for a short term perspective, one can make a valid argument about that from a long term perspective, which is a basic tenet of value rule number one investing. There's just no way they're the same. Right. That's right. It's so, just no way. So last time, Dad, but let's we, went say, we have to say we have to say why it's just no way. I just one more thing. Why it's just no way is because we know for a fact that people are capable of being irrational under certain conditions. Like really smart people, and we're talking about really smart people are capable of being irrational in certain setups when they have to make decisions quickly. If yeah. they're they're if they're anchored to a certain thing, if they're if their incentives are misaligned, right? So if you look at your fund manager and you say, "What are your incentives, Mr. Fund Manager?" His incentives are to keep your money under his management. He gets paid by assets under management, and hit number one. And so that would in, imply that he would like to do a good job for you. Okay, so theoretically you're aligned. But he also has another incentive you might not realize that the second incentive that we have to look at is who's his boss, right? Are you his boss as, as his client or 
Does he have another boss? And most of these fund managers have another boss. Most of them report to someone who can fire them um, mm. at Fidelity Magellan or at Janus mm. or wherever. Yeah, yeah. And their incentive is to make sure you're doing a good job quarter by quarter by quarter by quarter against your peer group. And if you have four quarters of underperformance, they have a list of really smart people looking to take your job who are managing smaller amounts of money and killing it in the market. And they're going to bring that person in and take your job. So there's this perverse process that goes on with fund managers where they start off with a little bit of money. They do really good in the market because they're really smart and they sort of follow rule one style investing. They're buying stuff that's cheap. They're selling it when it gets expensive. And then they move up and get more money where it's harder and harder to do that. And you're dealing with bigger and bigger stocks that are now much more widely known. And you get more money because you've done okay. And you get this perverse Peter, what does it call it? The, the uh, principle of reversion to the mean in people. I don't know. Like, well, you rise to the, what's it called? The Peter principle, where you rise to your level of incompetence. Oh, you rise to like your highest level of competence and then slightly into incompetence before you stop. <laughs> right. Because you get promoted yeah. into the last place. Right. Into and then whatever you're bad like at that. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's where you stay. <laughs> that's where you stop. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens, I think, with fund managers is they keep getting more capital under their belt and, and more and more money has this perverse weight to it. It just becomes very hard to manage the way that you manage a million dollars is pretty easy. You manage $500 million gets harder. You manage $5 billion, extremely hard. Which It's hard because it's hard to just move that much money in and out of, of companies in the market without moving the company prices themselves. And, and that one thing causes you to reduce your, your vision of what you could put money into from, from maybe 30 or 40,000 stocks around the world down to the same thousand stocks that yeah, all the rest of the huge. guys are looking at. Yeah. Because they have to be big enough for you to move in and out without moving the market. But what you're explaining is why fund managers have a shorter term perspective, even if they want to have a longer term perspective, even if they think that a longer term perspective is better. You're explaining why, because of their own corporate structure that they're in, they have to have this quarter by quarter and year by year perspective. But that doesn't totally explain why risk and volatility are not the same for a long-term perspective. Well, let me let me just make sure we know what that what that means. Essentially, what we're saying is that there's this measure of volatility, that is how fast a thing is moving around, or well, how big it moves around, I should say, sort of the, the extent of the movement. So the price movement of an ordinary stock around in the market is just some up and down, some amount of price movement, 20% this year, 14% next year, up and down. Now, what they've done is, is that, said, sorry to interrupt you. Is that true that um, the time period in which it moves doesn't matter? So, like, like for for what it, for this like calculation of volatility. Um, no, so you're like right. if it, I it have like matters. company A and it drops twenty percent in one day versus company B and it drops twenty percent in one month, would those be considered different volatilities or the same? Those would be different volatilities. There's okay. there's a different, you are looking at time, right? Okay. So the time matters. So we're going to take the time, whatever time we choose, let's say of the index, let's say we're going to choose a year and we're going to look at the movement of the, the best companies in that time period. Let's say the S&P 500. We'll look at the movement of that for a year. 
And then we're going to compare how your stock, let's say Lululemon, moved in comparison to that over the last year and the year before and the year before. So we'll look at this and we'll, de we'll define Lululemon's level of risk by how much more or less it moved than this basket of stocks called the S&P 500. And so we're going to say that the level of movement of the S&P is at level one. Mm -hmm. And then Lululemon is moving around a whole bunch more, twice as mm -hmm. much. So we're going to give it a two. So we're going to say that the risk of Lululemon is basically twice as much as the market. And we're going to assign that risk level. And the problem with that idea, it's a nice idea because you can put a number on it. The problem is that you're going to give a company the same risk level that's moving up like Google for year after year after year after year faster than the market. You're going to call Google riskier than the market. So it yeah. does, the volatility doesn't matter which direction it's going. Because remember, everything's priced to perfection. So if it's moving up much faster than the market, that price is built into Google already. That level of risk that it'll continue to do that is built in already into the price. So if its level of speed of growth is starting to slow down, that's going to impact it. It'll impact its price, even though it's better than the stock market. So it's very clever and it's very well thought out. But the problem is gradually over time, we've started to see that it's just not true. Well, but I think for people who do have a short-term outlook, the amount that a company's price moves up and down does involve risk for them. If they need to be able to sell on any given day, then a company with a price that's constantly changing is one that's just going to be straight up less reliable and than a company that moves on a nice, even trajectory. And they can predict that next week, if they might need to sell it, uh, they're going to be able to get, you know, whatever price they're looking for. Well, Warren Buffett puts it really well. I, I love his example of this. He says, let's say you have uh, a company that is, uh, you know, really solid long term, right? Yeah. And it's going along at a risk level of one, right with the S&P 500. It's just doing the same as the other 500 big stocks. Okay. And then you have this moment where um, there's a blow up of a well in the Gulf of Mexico. Just it never happened before, right? You get a clean slate, never happened before. Blow up of a well, not this company's well, but some other company's well, blows up. And because of the fear around those companies, this company drops like a brick when everybody who has fund managed, funds to manage sells off all the Gulf of Mexico companies. Sure. With me? Yeah. All right. Now, because it's moved down 50% and the rest of the S&P has not, its beta or its its volatility has risen dramatically. Yeah. Okay. So here's Warren Buffett's point. Let's say the company was selling for $40 a share when before this well thing had happened. Yeah. The well didn't happen to it. It wasn't its problem. And yet now it's selling for $20 a share. Now here's the crazy part. It's going to be fine down the road. The, it's not its well. No, but you're totally missing that the whole reason people got worried about all the other companies in the Gulf of Mexico is that they weren't sure that the Gulf of Mexico was going to be okay. They weren't sure that there wasn't going to be some massive environmental problem that would affect other companies. That's why they all sold. They wanted to make sure they got out before they found out that the, the, the news was bad, you know? Right. But then again, that would be true for the short term. 
right? That would be true for the short term. That's right. what I'm talking about. Right. So for the short term, you could say, yeah, that might be um, a quasi-rational thing to think, but here's how you have to think. Here's on the short term. Here's how you'd have to think about it like this. That was worth forty dollars a share a minute ago. Yeah. When there was no thing going on, right. now it's only worth twenty dollars a share. Totally. Even though I would agree with you that the long-term cash flow for this company has hardly been affected at all. Totally, and I think that those are reasonable statements to make. For the, the short short-term term view is bad. And it is now half what it was. Uh, the price should now be half what it was. Long term, I think it's going to go back up. But my job as Ms. Fund Manager over here is to handle short term right now. So of well, course yeah. I sell. But then again, what what is the value of a business? Then you have to ask yourself, what is the value of a business? And my answer would be, and I think Buffett's answer would be, the value of the business is the amount of cash flow, I mean, this is the essence of pricing a company, the amount of cash flow that that's going to generate into the owner's hands over the, the time, the life of this business, right? Mm -hmm. Discounted back to today at some reasonable discount rate that reflects that this is not a T-bill. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, consider that your short-term view here doesn't consider that at all. No, no consideration for the long-term cash flow of this business. No consideration. In other words, that kind of only makes sense in the modern portfolio world where everything is priced perfectly. Exactly. And now it's, it's all priced perfectly for the moment. Exactly. So, so everybody's playing into it and it all works because everybody does it based on that, on modern portfolio theory and the short-term view, and it all kind of starts to really make sense when you're looking at it quarterly. Yeah, and and for that reason, they've awarded three Nobel Prizes for modern portfolio theory. Yeah. But it all depends on, on this Warren idea Buffett, of rationality. Or you're you, and, or you're me, or you're everybody listening to this who's investing their own money and doesn't have to give out a quarterly report to anybody or a yearly report to anybody, then we can look at it from a much more long-term perspective and say, this stock might be down for five years. And I can ride that out because I think, based on my research, that in 20 years, it's going to be worth a lot more than it is today. Yeah, exactly. Let, let me give you another example. Let's say we own a farm, okay? And okay. and you're you own the farm and I'm the farmer next door. And every day I come out to the farm fence between us and I shout prices to you <laughs> where I would like to buy your your farm. And my my offers to you are going to be based almost entirely on what corn prices are doing right now. Because our farms have corn on them? Yeah. Our, yes. They're not, no, they're growing oranges. But I'm shouting, yeah, it's corn. Just making sure. Just getting the okay. facts straight. So now let's say that there's been way too much corn planted. Way too much. There were really high prices last year. This year, everybody planted corn instead of other crops. And they planted it right to the hedgerows. So all of a sudden this year, we have this massive crop of corn. And corn prices fell by by seventy five percent. Crap. Yeah, they were at eight dollars, and now they're at two dollars. Corn prices are all the way back where, where they were right after World War II. 
All right. Now I come to the fence and I shout prices. Danielle. Well, last year I was shouting prices of 16,000 an acre. I'll give you 16,000. I'll give you 16,000. No, go no, away. No, go away. Quit yelling. All right. This year I come back. I'll give you 4,000. I'll give you 4,000. No. Right? No, go away. Go away. So you're a long-term farmer. This is, you're in it for, for a lifetime. And this guy shouting prices as they go up and down to you doesn't really have much impact other than he's irritating. You're not really in the market to sell. You're in the market for the long-term cash flow of that business. Correct. All right, good. Now, if we applied that same standard to, let's say, any other company you like, let's say Lululemon, if you liked Lululemon, which we'll have to talk about, if you applied that same standard to Lululemon and you said, I don't care what prices the market shouting, the market can be massively irrational. It could be affected by all these short-term things. That's why we would call it irrational. Long-term, it's irrational. Short-term, sure, there's reasons yeah. why. And I, I, I just want to make that distinction clear because we've discussed it so much and it's something that's so much out there in the world. Right. And uh, it took me a while to figure out what the hell you were talking about with this. Well, you actually, you actually thing. turned me on to this idea that these guys are actually pretty rational on a short-term basis. I didn't really think about that. And Buffett and, and Graham have never really talked about it like that. No, they don't, because it's easier for them to say, it's also simple. What would anyone talk about for the rest of the semester? <laughs> I mean, sorry, Charlie. <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of you. But uh, in a way, you deserve it. Because, yeah, like they definitely dumb it down and make it seem so easy. And I'm not saying it's hard. Like, I really do think that the basic principles are really fantastically easy. But, um, but let's just, you know, let's have some respect for intelligent people who are out there who are working under different constraints than we are. That's, that's what's really going on. I, that's, you've given me a new perspective, honestly. And I, and I, and I am, I have changed my view since you, you talked about that. Well, you're very smart and you do, you do have a good way of looking at everybody's point of view and finding why they're sitting there looking at like the world like that and, and explains a little bit why really smart people have kind of bonded their careers to this efficient market hypothesis, right? Yeah. Because you can do a lot of cool things. You can do a lot of math if you think that uh, velocity and risk are the same thing, right? Or volatility and volatility, risk are the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, for if sure. you think that's true. And then and that's build, really helpful. Like, interesting models and you can yeah. have technical indicators and all kinds of things that people have. And yeah, it really helps if you're not if you're not certain about what's gonna happen, which most people aren't, it's really nice to have all this stuff to anchor on, even if you know it's probably wrong. You hang on to it because it's you're good at the math, and the math creates answers that are accepted in places like bankruptcy court when they're trying to determine the, the value of a business. It's modern portfolio theory answers on value that they use in court, not you know Warren Buffett theories on value. So I, 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 I really see why people do it, and I really see why there's a short-term rational reason for it. And I really am excited that, you know, we're talking about for the the first time um, that the little guy has a chance to understand this from a different perspective because we're not being driven by the same incentives. Yeah, totally. Which we're, is everything. It's everything. 
it, it's everything. It's like they always say, if you want to know why people do things, follow the money, right? And so, <laughs> so what's the money yeah. for a fund manager? Is it your money? Is that what we're talking about? No, it's the money they get in their pocket. And they get that money in their pocket by performing around or at the market level with their fund. Um, and they can do that pretty, pretty easily by following modern portfolio theory. Now, of course, extremely difficult to beat the market, but they've learned, as we've talked about here on the podcast, they've learned that they have this perverse incentive to not try to be a hero. If you try to be a hero and do really well like Warren Buffett, you're going to have years where the market does substantially better than you're doing, unless you're Bernie Madoff, in which case you just make up your numbers, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the goal, yeah, I'd say the goal for a lot of people, um, particularly those managing sort of medium amounts of money, you know, not the like high flyer billion fund, billion dollar fund people, but for, for your typical person in your local town, um, their goal is to make a living, you know, their goal is to like make a good salary at the end of the year and, and not lose their client's money. And, and not get try to, to do it again genius. the next year. You know, not not try to be a genius and beat the market every quarter. Yeah. That's genius territory. You know, once in a while, somebody manages to do that, beat the market every quarter. Warren Buffett doesn't beat the market every quarter. Ben Graham never did. But you have, occasionally you have a genius. You have a guy like Thorpe who, who did the, the book, Beat the Dealer, and then became a fund manager. And he literally beat the market every quarter. I can't, no, he didn't either. He never had a losing <laughs> quarter. That's what it was. He never had a losing oh, court. Oh, yeah. And those are different. That's a really good point, Dad. Those are different. Those are different. So, yeah. I, okay. We can, we can continue to spend yeah, a ton well, of time on this. Yeah, well, we've ended up uh, basically like running through a little recap of value investing here, which has actually been really nice. We haven't talked about that in a while, um, except for our, you know, 20,000 part series of back to basics, but it's a little and more I, granular. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think it's really important to know to note this as we come come toward the end of a long, long, long bull market. We're we're now in our ninth year of a bull market. We're in our tenth year since the last recession. As we talked about, Warren Buffett has pointed out that these come along, these recessions come along every 10 years or so. So we're, we're getting right there where you have to pay attention. And so you'd be thinking, well, if people think like Buffett and Graham, they would be exiting the market. They would be looking at a, a place to get out, to put their money to cash, to be ready for the next crash. So you've got money to buy with. But most fund managers are not doing that because yeah. they know that if they exit too soon, they're not going to keep up with their peer group. And if they do that, if the market keeps going irrationally higher, which it absolutely could for years, then they're going to get fired. Well, it's not just fund managers thinking about that. I mean, we've gotten a number of emails to our questions at investedpodcast.com email address. Please send in your questions and comments. Nice and we've gotten we've gotten a number of, of questions of, from people saying like, is this market just going to keep going up? Like, is it being artificially propped up? And, you know... Is this something that could just not change? Well, and, this great economist and it's gone up. It's gone up for a while. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, this great economist back in the '30s, Keynes, um, said something real important. He was a market trader and investor for years, and then got into the government side of things. And he said, "Look, the market can be irrational longer than you have money. If you're <laughs> betting against it, and you would be if you take your money out of the market, 
you're betting against the market and it can keep going up longer than you can sit there. If you're a fund manager, you can't sit there forever in cash. So the fund managers are very aware of this. They understand that the best way to, to do this is to just stay with the market and try to get out as it starts to crumble. Um, and we don't know how long that'll take. On the other hand, I got to tell you, Warren Buffett in 2001 was quoted, I think it was in Fortune or Forbes magazine, um, in an interview where he said that he follows the Wilshire GDP ratio, which is on the Federal Reserve in from St. Louis, the FRED. You look it up, it's FRED, Wilshire GDP. And he said when it, when it's at 70 to 80 percent, it's a it's a reasonable time to be invested in stocks. Hmm. When when the will the value of the whole market is worth about seventy to eighty percent of the the revenue of America, which is GDP. Okay, so this is a ratio between the GDP, the revenue of the U.S., right. and basically the entire market, because the Wilshire is an index of what, like two thousand stocks, five thousand stocks, five thousand stocks. Okay. Okay, so pro just basically the biggest market index. So when you have the the market priced less, like down by twenty or thirty percent from your revenue. Because mm -hmm. the market's based on earning, price and earnings, right? Yeah, They're a different yeah. metric. But you, you can see that the, the Wilshire 5000 is contributing greatly to the revenue of America. That's Those two things are, I mean, those businesses are what help create the revenue of America. Absolutely. So there's got to be some sort of relationship. And Buffett is saying, okay, here's the relationship. 70 to 80% or lower, and you're in a pretty good place to buy stocks. When it goes to 100%, like it, it, it did in 2000, it goes to 100%. Then he says, you're in a very dangerous place hmm. as a okay. stock buyer. You're in a very dangerous place. Today, and, and the Wilshire has only been at 100%, I think, four times, three or four times um, in recent history, right? So uh, it, was, it was there in 2000, and Buffett was talking about that in 2001. It was there in 2008, hmm. and it's there today. As a matter of fact, today, it's gone to a place we've never seen it before, which is 140% of GDP. We're at 140% of GDP. Percent of GDP in the market. Yeah, so think about this. If 100% is in the danger zone, and Warren Buffett is signaling that. Yeah. 140%, what would you call that? The extreme danger zone, right? Extreme fire danger, don't go in the forest. Yeah, but I mean, that's a guy who is buying stuff. He just bought a whole bunch of airline stocks. He bought, for his size of his portfolio, he bought 6% of his portfolio. Oh, really? That he has invested, which <laughs> turned out to be like 10% of each one of the airlines. He's so huge, right? But here's what you don't know is that he has stored up now almost $90 billion of cash. It is the largest cash hoard in the history of Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett. Wow. wow. Never before has he had anything remotely like this much cash on hand. And he said in his letter, listen, when, it's, when, when you run into this time where the economic weather turns bad once every 10 years, you'd be, he says, it's going to rain gold. And when it rains gold, go outside with a bucket, not a thimble, right? Go outside with a wash tub. So he's getting his wash tub ready. I'm getting my wash tub ready. I want you to get your wash tub ready. I'm getting my wash tub ready. <laughs> and, and the wash tub means a list of great companies you really love. You have a 
strong idea about their current value. Uh, and you're ready when they go on sale. You've got the wash tub already bought and ready to go. You don't run outside with a thimble. And so we're looking for this to come along. Now, when's it going to come along? Buffett doesn't know. Charlie doesn't know. No one knows. The market can be perversely incentivized by all kinds of federal government action, by the actions of other countries around the world. Things can just go on crazy, crazy numbers for longer than you can imagine. So you have to be patient. That's just the way it works. You have to be patient. Yeah. I mean, I think you just made a really huge point. Don't just, I mean, I think of sort of being ready as like, oh, like have your money in cash, be ready to buy. But you just said, know exactly what you're going to buy. Know what money you're going to buy it with. Know right. how much you're going to buy. Right. And be dead ready, like for serious. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, not like, oh, the market's dropping. Oh my gosh, what, what should I choose? Like, have your plan, put it on a spreadsheet, be yep. ready. Yep, that's exactly right. You want to talk about that more next time? Well, no, because I want to talk about Lululemon after we've been mentioning it over and over. Um, so let's talk about Lulu next time and um, and also about being ready and we'll, we'll get to both. Okay, so just for a little hint on Lulu, it just dropped 12 or 15%. It's just gone down like a brick. It went from $65 down to it's currently at 51 and a lot of people are texting me and saying, is it on sale? Is it time to buy? You know, price drops don't mean anything. Price and value are not the same thing. All a price drop means is, hey, we should take a look at this if we haven't before. If we don't know what it's worth, maybe we should look at it now. Maybe it did go on sale. So let's but do that. Okay. Chances are most price drops are an indication that it's just too overpriced. So don't get in a panic <laughs> about it. And we'll come back to you guys next week and we'll talk about Lululemon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, everybody. Right. Thanks, you guys. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything, and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.